Support for Innovation Hub comes from Cambridge Savings Bank. Introducing the CSB1 package, a checking account combined with investing through Connect Invest to help you build a better tomorrow. cambridgesavings.com/csb1 Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. Several years ago, the psychologist Mitch Prinstein reconstructed a famous experiment. He and his colleagues asked a few classrooms of three-year-olds, who do you like most in your class? Who do you like least? Some kids emerged as clearly well-liked. You can think of these as like the popular three-year-olds. Some were not as well-liked. Then Princeton invited one child from each different classroom, so these kids did not really know each other, they had not played together, to spend time interacting. In about half an hour, the popular kids emerged as popular, and the unpopular kids emerged as unpopular. Now remember, a half hour before, these kids had never played together. They had no idea who was normally the popular kid in preschool. But Princeton discovered there was no hiding reality. And that reality may follow you well beyond three, like to 33 or 63. Mitch Princeton is the author of Popular, The Power of Likeability in a Status-Obsessed World. Mitch, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So on that experiment that I just described, why do you think it was that kids knew so quickly, like who were the popular kids and who were the not-so-popular kids? Oh, great question. Yeah, it was amazing. It it happened so fast. You can just see those unpopular kids immediately being shunned within a matter of minutes. And prior research has said that within three hours, you can really see all those social positions instantiated all over again. And it's because unless you know how to change it, the behaviors you engage in um, that make you unpopular in one setting will make you unpopular again all over. Things like being aggressive or Mm -hmm. being too self-focused. Where the populars, it's remarkable. They're not super extroverted. They're not the obvious kind of uh, charismatic leaders. They're kind of quiet. They have a good ability to read the group and kind of get everyone interested in what they're interested in by slowly, surreptitiously kind of guiding them in this non-dominant way. They're very, very skilled and clever. Hmm. So does that indicate to you, because we started talking about three-year-olds. I think when people think about popularity, they think about, you know, the person who is the homecoming queen or whatever. They think about Mm -hmm. 17-year-olds. But we started talking about three-year-olds and how so quickly popularity amongst three-year-olds, you know, merged right away. I wonder then, is popularity something that in some ways is innate or genetic? Because I think I would think of popularity as being related to how you look or maybe, you know, maybe wealthier people are more popular. But like three-year-olds, they have no idea about any of those things. So Mm -hmm. does that say to you that something about popularity is just something you're born with? Yeah. I mean, there there are definitely some things that we are born with or we do get from our parents that seem to be important. But – There's also a ton of this that is based on how our parents raised us, and not just at three, but all the way until we leave home. Parents have a remarkably important influence on how much um, their kids are really well-liked or how they have other forms of popularity, too. 
You know, there was one really interesting study that was done where they asked moms to talk about their memories of their own experiences when they were young. I was going to ask if popular parents have popular kids. Yeah, and that's exactly what they were looking for is whether the popular moms had popular kids and mm-hmm. so on. And they, they actually found there were three groups of moms. There were popular moms. There were moms who had negative memories. But then there was a third group that had more anxiety about what happened to them when they were growing up. Well, of course, their kids did almost as you would expect. The popular moms had popular kids. The moms with negative memories had negative experiences. Uh, Their kids did. But those anxious moms, their kids did great. And the reason why was because those moms were so anxious about what happened to them growing up that they engaged in all kinds of behaviors to make sure that their kids did not suffer the same fate. And it turns out that what those moms did, it worked. And their kids ended up being popular. Okay, what'd they do? So a few things. One, you got to bring up your kids in an environment where they're not exposed to tons of aggression. And sometimes that's not just physical aggression, of course, but hostility or depression or kind of concerns about getting one's way. That's a number one ticket to rejection is if Mm. a kid Mm. believes that aggression is the way to interact with others. But a lot of it was way more subtle than that. It was not whether moms played with their kids, but if they use those opportunities while they play to teach them how to think about how to share, how to solve Mm -hmm. conflicts, how to develop skills um, inviting folks into new games. Lots of little skills. I talk about a bunch of them in the book that slowly scaffolds for kids exactly how to develop the kinds of likable traits that we later think were really all genetic, but they're not. They're really very much taught. Hmm. This is the nature and nurture thing where it's hard to tell whether the person has passed on the behavior or the gene. Yeah. And that's why I I love this one particular study that shows that those anxious moms who did not have it for themselves, they were able to teach it for their kids because it really gives hope to all of those people who feel like, I don't want my kids to suffer what I did, you know, and is there anything I can still do about it? And the answer is absolutely yes. Hmm. Now, it turns out, and I found this really interesting and absolutely true in my experience, that there are you know, there's not just one kind of popular person. There are two kinds of popular people. There are popular people who are popular because everybody likes them. And I can think of people in my life who I've met who are exactly like that. Everybody likes them. And you don't even really resent them for the fact that everybody likes them generally. Mm -hmm. But there are also people who are very popular, but not that many people like them. They're just very high status people. And somehow they climbed up the rungs of status But sometimes they seem kind of mean while doing it, like they stepped on other people to get there. But it doesn't take away the fact that they are indeed high status and almost everybody in that community recognizes that to be so. You want to talk about those two kinds? Yeah, no, you you described it perfectly. And what's interesting to me is that one of those types of popularity starts at age three, and that's who's really very well liked. Mm -hmm. The other one doesn't become like a thing until adolescence. And there's a reason why that our brains develop to, to make us care about that kind. The thing that's really interesting to me is that it used to be that after we, we grew out of adolescence, we would all go back to caring about likability and that status form of popularity became less and less important. Well, starting about 30 years ago, the world changed. And now we are all stuck in this kind of permanent adolescence where (laughs) we still care about status like we did when we were teenagers, 
more than we used to. Social media and reality TV and lots of other factors have changed our culture really, really dramatically. And those two different kinds of popularity persist for the rest of our lives. It feels like a big claim to say the world changed 30 years ago. Um, So (laughs) because, you know, we are who we are, like all these, you know, the raw stuff inside us has been what it's been uh, for a long, long time, for many thousands of years. So did something really change 30 years ago? Are we pressing different buttons? Explain that to me about what changed 30 years ago. Yeah, there's a bunch of different theories that have talked about why that might be. I mean, some really say that it was having to do with the media and the way that our news cycle changed and started making more opportunities for regular people to suddenly become the headlines. And over time, we saw people being famous just for being famous and not because of anything they did or or achieved. And it changed our relationship with popularity. Some say that it was the internet or reality TV that kind of suddenly made us all want that 15 minutes for ourselves. But we have proof that this has changed. You know, there was a really interesting study done by a professor at Cornell who examined the diaries of people back in the 1900s and Hmm. also more recently. And she found that young women and adolescent girls would used to write about really wanting to connect with their community and do what was best for the, the whole and the society and collective. And that's what people used to care about. It's not just Uh, teenage girls who would write that. But I think we all knew that that's what society was more about back then. That's not what people write in their diaries now, it turns Mm. out, as you can imagine. Everyone wants to be the most famous, the most beautiful, to have the most attention and money. And this is a very different kind of popularity. And it's not what we used to value as a culture. And have people followed both the folks who are popular because of just this tremendous likability on all sides and the folks who are high status, not because they're nice, but because they just they're just high status for some reason or another past high school. Like what happens to these people? Do those people carry on their high status or their likability into whatever job they end up doing? Yeah, there has been research following them up over time and the likable people and the high status people completely opposite outcomes. Those high-status people do continue to be social climbers. You know, they might be the bosses. They mm-hmm, might be the mm-hmm. the envied person in their community. But studies show that they end up having relationship problems. They're more likely to have addictions. They have more anxiety, more depression. They appear on the outside to have high status. But whether they're celebrities or CEOs or government officials – There are a lot of interviews, even in the book that I talk about, that describe exactly why they are miserable. Those really likable people, it's incredible how many benefits they have. Even 40 years later, they make more money, they're happier, they have better marriages, and they actually end up living longer. Believe it or not, they have better health that has been determined to be because of their likability. Huh. You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. I'm talking with Mitch Prinstein, author of the book Popular, The Power of Likeability in a Status-Obsessed World. He's also a professor of psychology at the University of North Carolina. Is there a difference between popularity between the sexes? Do boys and girls play this out differently? Or, you know, the classic like cheerleader and football star, are they pretty much reading from the same book in terms of popularity? Yeah, there are there are some differences. That distinction between likability and status, turns out that boys have an easier time being both, 
Because that, that seems like the ideal thing, mm, right? Why right. not have all the high status but also be someone that people like? And it seems that's easier for boys. For girls, the relationship between being likable and status is pretty much zero. So in other words, about half of those girls um, and young women who have high status are disliked. In fact, they are very much hated by all of their peers. Mm. And that's a big difference and it's important because – it changes the ways that people are aggressive uh, among females, and it changes the ways that females feel that they can ascend the status hierarchy as adults. There's kind of a, a template that they experienced in adolescence telling them that if you want to be high status, there's not going to be any room to be likable. And that's not true. So it's a really unfortunate message that some young women have gotten. Have you looked at other cultures and, like, if you are popular in America, you know, if you're popular in St. Louis, are you also going to be popular in uh, Winnipeg? Like, are you also going to be popular in Rio? I mean, does this translate? Are popular people just plain popular or it's dependent on different cultures? Yeah. You know, it does depend on cultures. When it comes to likability, there's a little bit more similarity across cultures, but Status is something that's maybe more of a type of popularity in Western cultures. And when we did a study looking at adolescents in New England and compared them to adolescents the exact same age, the exact same time, we asked the exact same questions in China, we found that the more aggressive you were, the more status popularity you got over time in America. But in China, the exact opposite. The more aggressive mm. you were, the lower you went in popularity. Explain to me what you mean by aggressive. So the kind of aggression that we usually measure is comes in two flavors. One is, of course, kind of hitting, kicking, calling names. and okay. uh, But the second is kind of that mean girl's aggression. It's uh-huh. excluding folks or mm-hmm. giving them the silent treatment or gossiping about them. And both of them are really relevant across different cultures, and they both have this different relationship with popularity across cultures, too. Okay, so that kind of aggression, it's going to get you places in New England, not so much in China. <laughs> yeah, okay. it's going to get you places in the short term in New England. You're going to have a long-term sad outcome, perhaps, but it does get you higher status, unfortunately, um, as a teenager. So if um, high school is a pyramid and there's not a lot of people who are able to fit at the top, um, we can all think of like who the popular people were in high school. Why has our species evolved to create a situation in which most people are not at the top and most people don't feel great about that? And that seems (laughs) like there's some sort of flaw in that evolutionary design. Yeah, there is. There is because, (laughs) you know... This made a whole lot more sense when they gave out food and mating partners to the people at the top and everyone else was became extinct. But we don't live in that society anymore. Mm-hmm. Even those at the lowest you know, uh, positions on that pyramid um, in most civilized countries can still find mating partners and food. So we don't need the system that was built in our brains 60,000 years ago anymore. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But we evolve far too slowly to get rid of it, um, to reflect our modern needs and conveniences. So, yeah, we're kind of walking around stuck with a system that we don't need anymore. But what was the advantage to it even 60,000 years ago? Because you didn't want just a few people to be able to mate. Didn't you want everybody to? I mean, if you ideally, you didn't want 90 percent of people to die off because of lack of food. So, yeah, it's a great question. So we now can still see this in other species. The way that it works is your social interactions are 
regulated to people close to you on the hierarchy. So it actually creates order and it limits aggression. So if everyone was vying to be the most popular and there was no big continuum, everyone would be aggressive with everybody. Everyone would Mm. think they could interact with everyone equally. But that popularity hierarchy actually creates kind of an organizational system that you see with chimpanzees and even sharks uh, in a lot of species. Again, we don't need that system as modern-day humans so much anymore. Um, But we're kind of stuck with it because that's the way that we've been programmed and evolved. And it plays out in high school more than at any other time because that's the point at which our brains turn on to care about that kind of hierarchical form of popularity. Mitch Prinstein is a professor of psychology and the director of clinical psychology at the University of North Carolina. He's also the author of Popular, The Power of Likeability in a Status-Obsessed World. Mitch, thank you so much. This was fascinating. Thank you so much. One more thing here that Princeton mentioned to me that I thought was really interesting. A powerful aspect of popularity is that it has a snowball effect. So popular people get better at popularity with practice. In the same way that basketball players get better at basketball with practice or writers get better by writing. And those who aren't popular, they are not invited to the same number of get-togethers. So they don't get a chance to work their popularity muscles. While everyone else is developing new skills, they're lagging behind and playing catch-up. And what's interesting is this doesn't just affect what it's like when you're a kid or a teenager, but that kind of pattern continues to play out in every corporation and every relationship as an adult. It's the same pattern over and over again. You can find more on Princeton's investigation of popularity at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash innovationhubradio. Support for Innovation Hub comes from the Museum of Science in Boston, working to inspire everyone to push the boundaries of what's possible through hands-on exhibits, interactive programs, K-12 engineering curricula, and educator resources. Learn more at mos.org. A couple of years ago, there was a swanky party in L.A. that got very weird very fast. It was awards season, and BuzzFeed was having their Golden Globes get-together at a chic restaurant. At the time, one of their big online stars who was in a bunch of their videos was a woman named Brittany Ashley. But Ashley didn't actually earn enough money to make ends meet. So on the side, she had a job at a restaurant, which some of her co-workers did not know. But they discovered that night. And so she had to work as a waitress at our company Golden Globes party. And everyone there was like, is this a bit? What are you doing? And she's like, no, I work at this restaurant. That's Gabby Dunn, who also worked for BuzzFeed and is also a YouTube star. And they were like, we thought, and even people that were our coworkers, like, we thought you worked for for the company. And she's like, no. And so she had to, like, serve basically her contemporaries because they were not paying her enough to make a living on her own. And she was in a lot of videos, but they were not compensating her properly. Dunn says Ashley isn't alone. There's a dream for many young people that through podcasts and through YouTube and through Instagram, you can follow your passion. Musicians can attract a following and live off their music. Actors can write their own scripts and film them, which is exactly what Dunn does. 
Great writers can blog. Maybe they can snag a book deal. And that can happen, much in the way that you can make a living playing basketball or drumming in a band. But you might not want to bet on it. Now, though, we've entered this strange era in which fame and money have decoupled. And just because you've got adoring fans does not mean you've got a ton of cash, which Dunn discovered when she worked for a company that delivers food and convenience items to you. I mean, it was really weird when I was working for Postmates. They give you a timer, so you have to deliver the food within a certain amount of time. And I would get stopped for photos or I would someone would want to engage with me at Chipotle about like, oh, aren't you a YouTuber and all this stuff. And then I would have to be like, I have to go. I'm actually I have to deliver this. Gabby Dunn actually does now make a full time living from comedy, from her podcasts, from book contracts, from sitcom deals and from her YouTube series. Welcome to Just Between Us. I'm Allison Raskin. I'm Gabby Dunn. We have a comedy channel together because we're best friends and comedians. And we're an odd couple. That means one of us is different than the other one. It's a classic comedy routine. Dunn says it took about a year and a half of work while also making deliveries and doing other jobs on the side till she made enough money to pursue her passion full time. She says success was a combo of hard work and luck. And having a backup plan is crucial. You have to think of yourself not as a YouTuber, but as a musician or a makeup artist or writer or director or producer. Because that way, you if that doesn't um, blow up for you, you still have the skill and it can still be a resume. So, for instance, if you're a makeup artist and you make a channel and it's slow goings, which a lot of us have taken a long time to grow our channels. Like, you can't expect to grow in six months. But... If someone sees that and hires you for a gig, then isn't wasn't the YouTube channel worth it? That's the view from someone on the ground, grinding it out every day. Brooke Aaron Duffy has studied this new decoupling of fame and money and written about it in Not Getting Paid to Do What You Love, Gender, Social Media, and Aspirational Work. She's an assistant professor of communication at Cornell University, and she says that a lot of young people believe that following your passion is possible, and it is. But Duffy notes that the path to success can be deceptively tough. I think what's so interesting is we quite frequently come across these articles in the mainstream media and kind of circulated amongst our friend groups about the internet famous, these people who have incredible followings, they have this large, you know, even use the, the fan base term, they're spending a lot of their their time and, and energy creating content, but the problem is they're not getting compensated. And there there's various compensation models that are emerging and evolving very quickly in this new digital media landscape where advertisers are trying to reach us, but For advertisers, reaching out to a young person who has a large following on Twitter or on Instagram is kind of this perfect way to reach out to very finicky audiences where, you know, we're in the so-called attention economy. And because young people are looking for exposure, they're looking for visibility, these are kind of the the buzzwords of this new economy, Mm -hmm. they're willing to work with companies that are paying in this always deferred promise of exposure rather than any kind of financial capital. So there's two sides of that. But let's take the side of being famous but not having a lot of money. I can imagine somebody saying, why? Why would you spend any time cultivating any fame if there was no payoff at the end? Why not just, you know, 
be an accountant or whatever and just like make some actual cash. It's true. Nobody's going to know who you are on the street. But what's the good of having people know who you are on the street and just having, you know, no way to pay your rent? Yeah, so I mean, there's there's a long history of these sort of dream jobs or idealized careers. I mean, artistics and creative industries, th- these are longstanding professions. But what's different now is that in this digital age, we are constantly assured that we can get paid doing what we love if we have the right kind of content to attract audiences. And, you know, the, the longer backstory of this is sort of the democratization of technologies, the idea that seemingly anyone can create content and put it up onto YouTube or or start a blog or post on Instagram. And it's it's a very seductive narrative, the idea that I can just have my creative expression, put it online, and have this kind of ready-made fan base. But what we don't hear about is the time, the energy, and the money that goes into developing these various passion projects. Hmm. And and you've said that unlike traditional advertising, like in the case of people who want to be stars via blogs or via Instagram, companies will often come to them, want to advertise, but but offer no compensation. So essentially, you've got people, and you particularly look at women, doing a commercial and saying like, yeah, I will offer visibility for this lipstick or this phone, and I won't get paid. How many people will do that? I think the question is how many can do it. And so, you know, to think about who can work for free. And I think the the easiest comparison is the unpaid internship system. And so I, I teach media and communications classes and thinking about what kind of young person can afford to shuffle off to New York City for a right, summer right, right, and right. work without compensation, paying their living expenses, paying rent, and essentially doing free work. And it's people that already have access to the financial capital. Mm-hmm. They're already coming from families that are well-heeled and, and can afford to do this. And so I think there's a, a similar comparison between the social media economy, and I, I think um, kind of speaks to Gabby Dunn's points earlier. Who is it that can afford to work for free and to promote these products and even spend the time and energy creating content without compensation other more anything more than this this fleeting promise that maybe it one day will pay off. You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. I'm talking with Brooke Aaron Duffy, author of Not Getting Paid to Do What You Love, Gender, Social Media, and Aspirational Work. She's also an assistant professor of communication at Cornell. What do you see happening to the aspirational economy? Do you feel like people have a sense if you think of aspiration as like being able to follow that thing you love and like you can turn your love for sports or beauty or food or whatever, that can be a job. Um, Do you see people increasingly young people saying, you know, I kind of know from people who are a few years older than me. It really can't be that that much of a job or it's too all consuming or is this attracting ever more young people in hopes of like being the superstar? I think it's going to continue to attract young people that, that are interested in pursuing this until we see more of the kind of anecdotes like the, you know, Gabby Dunn's case and the case from Asina O'Neill. I don't know if you know the case, but she was the Australian Instagrammer. So this was about two years ago. Um, 
she was an Australian Instagrammer and seemingly had this perfect life where she's posting images of herself frolicking on the beach. Mm. And, you know, she was a beautiful young woman and living in this lovely location, had a very large following and was getting paid from advertisers and so forth. And then she kind of came out and said, like, this is taking an incredible emotional toll on me. Um, I cannot do this anymore. It's it's not sustainable. I am spending all my time editing photos and dieting and mm. basically presenting an image that is, she kept saying, not real life. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, she had this kind of tearful message on YouTube. And at the time, a lot of people said it was a publicity stunt. But she she has really disappeared from the mm-hmm. social media landscape. And that was about two years ago. And so what I like about that case, unfortunate as the actual example was, is that it's really peeling back the curtains on this. And so the same thing, Gabby Dunn had a piece in Fusion a few years ago called The Sad Economics of Internet Fame, and I believe that you were. um, That's the opening clip. Yes. What these two cases do is reveal what life is like kind of beyond this glamorous curtain, the time, the energy that goes into this, but also the emotional labor required and how many months and years get invested in order to do this. And they provide a very different picture than what we typically see circulated around in mainstream media. I mean, every single day I feel like I come across a new article that's, you know, Instagrammers are getting paid $30,000 for a single post. Or the Blonde Salad, this blogger from Italy, is getting $8 million. Mm which is a staggering amount that I can't even wrap my head around. But we we love these tales of success. And what we don't see are the stories of those who are not able to make it. They are not able to get paid doing this job that they love. And I think until we tend to see more of that, we're going to continue to valorize this sort of Internet celebrity as a path to easy and glamorous work. But if somebody said to you, you know, for 100 years, people have moved to Los Angeles to be movie stars, right? People have dreamed Mm -hmm. of being rock stars or being in the NBA or being in the NFL. And that's a, you know, a pyramid. So few people can fit on the top layer and so many people want to be the next big movie star or the next big rock star. Isn't this just new technology applied to an old, old dream, which is like being at the top, but it's almost impossible to get there, but... You know, Madonna got there. I mean, you know what I mean? Like, there are mm-hmm. people, you can tell stories of people who did it. No, I think there, there's absolutely a, a long history of, of this narrative that if you work hard enough, meritocracy, you, you know, you'll rise to the top, you will be the best, you will become the superstar. But I think what's different is this emphasis and the promise that the new technologies hold for us to do this mm-hmm. because there's this emphasis on democratizing technologies. Mm -hmm. Again, the the idea that before I would have to move to Los Angeles and know that I was taking a huge risk, but Mm -hmm. this isn't seen as a risk when I'm spending all my, my time and energy creating content for YouTube. Right, right. And so I think that's what we're seeing is different. It's it's an older story, but we're seeing the intensification and the acceleration of this promise. And the faith that this time is different. Exactly. Brooke Erin Duffy is an assistant professor of communication at Cornell University. She's also the author of Not Getting Paid to Do What You Love, Gender, Social Media, and Aspirational Work. Brooke, thank you so much for your time. 
Thank you. It was really lovely to chat. Thanks again, Kara. Duffy says that among the people she spoke to, who were trying to channel their creative energy into income, many said that as they became more business-minded and they started paying attention to what articles got a lot of hits and were commented on and shared, they became less creative and more obsessed with numbers and giving their audience exactly what they wanted. We've got more on Gabby Dunn, the YouTube star that we talked to at the beginning of this segment, and a fascinating blogger named Heather Armstrong. She was once called the queen of the mommy bloggers, and her tangle with fame was tougher than you might expect. That's all at our website, innovationhub.org. Support for Innovation Hub comes from Destination Medical Center, fueling innovation, talent, and community in Rochester, Minnesota, home to Mayo Clinic. Learn more at dmc.mn. Once upon a time, you knew people were rich because having a job was superfluous. This scene from Downton Abbey perfectly reflects a late 19th century view of a woman, played by Maggie Smith, who has always lived a life of leisure. You do know I mean to involve you in the running of the estate. Oh, don't worry. There are plenty of hours in the day. And of course, I'll have the weekend. What is a weekend? Not seeing a distinction between the week and the weekend was clearly a mark of wealth. The phrase ladies who lunch refers to women who have both time and means. But somewhere along the line, at least in America, something shifted. Just having a lot of money was not quite enough, at least in a lot of people's minds, to qualify you as high status. Listen to this 2014 Super Bowl ad from Cadillac. Other countries, they work, they stroll home, they stop by the cafe, they take August off. Off. Why aren't you like that? Why aren't we like that? Because we're crazy, driven, hardworking believers, that's why. Those other countries think we're nuts. Whatever. We're the Wright brothers insane? Bill Gates, Les Paul, Ali. Were we nuts when we pointed to the moon? That's right. We went up there, you know what we got? Bored. A new study argues that this shift in values has been so profound that we've started to prize work not for what it can get us, a pool, expensive clothes, a fancy vacation, but for something even more alluring, prestige. Neeru Paharia is an assistant professor at Georgetown University's School of Business, and she's a co-author of the study Conspicuous Consumption of Time, When Busyness and Lack of Leisure Time Become a Status Symbol. Neeru, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. So what made you think in the first place about um, studying the status or the respect that you get by working hard? Yeah, so we we were kind of starting from, um, you mentioned, uh, what is a weekend? Right. Um, <laughs> that kind of view um, was really solidified by this gentleman whose name was Veblen, Thorstein Veblen. And he had this theory of the leisure class where he talked about how wealthy people are able to uh, waste money because mm-hmm. they have so much money. They mm-hmm. can waste money on sort of functionally useless products, but also how they can also waste time. So we originally just thought, well, really no one has studied, or at least it has been understudied, um, how people are now spending their time Mm. to show their status and had kind of thought at the beginning that maybe, you know, um, maybe we would see something that's more consistent with what Veblen had 
propose. But it turns out in American culture, it's actually quite the opposite. So people feel like people who are busy are more high status. And we found that the reason why is that you're sort of turning yourself into the object. You become the scarce resource hmm. um, in a sense, and people sort of um, view you as being in short supply, and then that kind of enhances your your value. So the thing that we might think of as being like that luxury product that you were talking about, like the Gucci handbag. Somebody walks on the street with a Gucci handbag and you know they're a very rich person. Or they drive down the street in a Mercedes and you know they're a very rich person. But you're saying if you perceive somebody to be busy, even if they don't have any of those things, you think what? That they're a rich person? That they're a good person? What do you think about them? Yeah, so we actually conducted a number of studies um, to kind of get at this and get at the specific mechanics of what is going on. And what we did in one of our studies is we varied the socioeconomic status of the person. So we, we, we told people that, you know, somebody came from maybe a lower class background or a middle class background or a very wealthy background. And then we varied whether a person was really busy, not that busy, et cetera. And regardless of the socioeconomic class that someone comes from, people in American culture view the busy person to be of a higher social status. Uh, but what we measured uh, more specifically was that these people are seen to be more ambitious, um, have uh, greater levels of competence, are viewed to be more scarce, um, et cetera. And so we found that that's sort of what's driving this uh, perception that busy people have more status. People kind of attribute these positive qualities to them. Let's talk about some of the the experiments you did. Can you talk a little bit about the uh, Peapod Whole Foods one? Like, what? How did you set it up? Why did you do it? Yeah. So we wanted to. Um, so we we first ran a number of experiments where we basically told people that somebody was busy or not busy, and then sort of asked them to to evaluate. Um, this target individual on their level of social status. But we wanted to see whether people could use products um, to signal their busyness. So instead of me telling you I'm busy, I can just use a product that has some kind of busyness um, that people would make some kind of inference about my level of busyness. And so we used three grocery stores. So we used Peapod, which is a, a delivery service. So presumably for somebody who doesn't have time to go shopping, um, they might order their groceries on Peapod and then Peapod would come deliver them to their doorstep. Right. We used Whole Foods because Whole Foods is sort of known as, I, I, I guess I wouldn't, um, the word luxury isn't quite right, but it's a high-priced, high-end grocery store. Um, and then we use Trader Joe's as sort of a control condition. So good grocery store, um, but not as expensive um, as something like a Whole Foods. And we found that uh, even though people thought Peapod was was inexpensive in the same way that Trader Joe's was inexpensive, uh, they found that people who shopped at Peapod had just as much status as somebody who shopped at Whole Foods, which is a kind of an expensive brand. Mm -hmm. So you could see that um, using a time saving device, in this case Peapod, this time-saving service, was able to give a person as much status as shopping at a store that was more expensive, like Whole Foods. 
So in general, I assume the people that you were studying felt like Whole Foods was the more expensive option. Yes. Yeah, so yeah. So we we went through a, a whole process where we pre-tested a bunch of brands and asked people like which brand is is more expensive, and and people felt that Whole Foods was was quite a bit more expensive than something like a Trader Joe's or a Peapod. But if you went with Peapod. You were judged as being sort of you got a bump up in richness almost. Yeah. You, you got to be judged as as high status as the people who went to Whole Foods just because what you're saying is I am so busy I can't even get to the grocery store. Yeah, exactly. And I mean the interesting thing is people when we ask them how expensive is Peapod, how expensive is Whole Foods, how expensive is Trader Joe's, they thought Trader Joe's and Peapod were the same and they were much less than Whole Foods. So even though Peapod is cheaper. Um, you get this kind of status boost because it sort of gives you the sense that you just don't have enough time to shop. You're too busy and important. Did did that finding surprise you? I mean, I think when we started the project and we were not completely sure which way it was going to go, it would be surprising in that context. But in the context of like really like thinking about American culture and um, understanding that Americans really do uh, appreciate busyness and and this idea of aspiration. Um, I would say maybe less surprising, but I guess what, you know, I think maybe in the context of we sort of have this view that spending money is the only way to show our status. Um, you know, it's it's kind of counterintuitive and, you know, unexpected in that sense. I'm Kara Miller. This is Innovation Hub. I'm talking with Niru Paharia, an assistant professor at Georgetown University, co-author of a study looking at how Americans perceive and judge busyness. Talk about, besides the Whole Foods Peapod experiment that you did, talk about other ways that people show they're busy without actually saying it, but ways that people, you know, judge you in a positive way because they perceive you to be a busy person. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I mean, one way would be like if somebody asks you to have a meeting with you, what, what do you tell them? Do you say, oh, well, yeah, I'm free anytime, or do you tell them, <laughs> uh, I can meet you at four fifteen in two Thursdays from now? <laughs> you know, like not even at four or four thirty, but I can meet you at four fifteen. Um, and if you're really like intense about it, you can say, I can meet you at four ten, <laughs> and. and uh, <laughs> And two Thursdays from now, I can meet at 410 to 420. I have a 10-minute window. Do you ever do that uh, kind of thing when actually you're more free than that, truly? I don't, but I can see how people would take that as a sign as opposed to saying, oh, yeah, you know, like I can meet you anytime. I think it's a little intuitive if you think about people who are, you know, self-employed. Like, say, imagine you're a real estate agent. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I can I can meet you uh, I can meet you anytime this week next week uh, right. versus you know <laughs> I can meet you in three weeks from now because you're so good you're so busy people want your time you're scarce and in demand you must be um, really good at what you do that's kind of like the the logic chain. So you mentioned in the study that kind of as we've been discussing, uh, busyness in some ways is replacing luxury goods as this. Um, status symbol. Do you feel like that marks a change where we're moving away from the the purse or the boat or whatever into uh, a, a different realm? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I, I think there's some things going on and there has been some discussion that, you know, millennials are um, less interested in owning products and things like that. And I think also social media 
makes it really easy to talk about how busy you are versus it's really hard on social media to tell everybody every day that you drive an expensive car. Right. Um, or you, that would uh, you be know, a strange like, oh, tweet I'm... to send out every day. Yeah, yeah. every day I'm, <laughs> I'm riding around in my $100,000 car and, you know, tomorrow I'm going to ride around in my $100,000 car. It's just the signaling status through products works well in the physical world mm-hmm. where you have almost like an excuse to use these products. Like you need a car, you need a handbag. And so you almost have kind of, it's called a functional alibi. So you have an alibi um, to use these products, but it's really hard to talk about using them on social media. You, almost, you don't really have a good excuse. Right. Do you feel like you say, I'm busy more now or less than before you did the study? I think I say it less, but I have to say it's like it's become such a <laughs> natural thing when people right. ask you how you're doing. It's like the natural answer is, oh, I'm right. busy. I've been so busy. You know, it's like you almost have to stop yourself from saying that. <laughs> Niru Paharia is an assistant professor at Georgetown, and she's co-author of the study, Conspicuous Consumption of Time, When Busyness and Lack of Leisure Time Become a Status Symbol. Niru, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. One more point of interest here before we leave Paharia's study. She and her co-authors also interviewed Italians to see if their outlook on busyness contrasted with Americans' outlook. You might guess that Europeans would place a higher value on leisure. And you'd be right. When Italians were told that a person worked all the time, rolling long hours, they saw that not as an aspirational lifestyle, but as a tough situation that, you know, maybe you would have to endure to support a family. Workers in that situation, they thought, were not lucky enough to live a life of leisure. Too busy for my loving, too busy for my petting, that is all that I've been And finally, a dip into history for the story behind an invention that people thought would make you way less busy. And though you're probably still super busy, I bet it saved you a lot of time over the years. During World War II, Percy Spencer was working at the defense company Raytheon, and he was known around the office as kind of a workaholic. But he was trying to follow a very clear directive from Raytheon pump out radar equipment for pilots. He actually often worked seven days a week, and he tried to discover these little ingenious workarounds to speed up production. Now, it's important to know, for someone who stumbled on one of the must-have gizmos of the electric age, that Spencer had always loved electricity. When he was a kid, it came to his part of rural Maine. He was a teenager then, and he helped figure out how it worked and installed it in a local factory. But his place in history changed one day when he noticed something strange while he was working at Raytheon. The candy bar that was in his pocket was getting hot. He was working with a magnetron, which is part of the radar apparatus. And he started to wonder if the same sort of thing would happen to other foods. Like, how about popcorn kernels? He tried it. They started popping all over the room. Percy Spencer had not only figured out how to microwave foods, he had created the first microwave popcorn. His next victim was an egg, which almost immediately exploded onto a co-worker's face. The early microwave ovens were a little bit bigger than the one you've got at home, six feet tall, 750 pounds, and they cost thousands of dollars. 
Not till the 80s, which was after Percy Spencer died, did microwaves start to become household fixtures, all because of a really stressful wartime job and a guy who loved electricity. Without that, no hot pockets, no lean cuisine, no nuke in the leftovers, no Orville Redenbacher. It's an America we'd hardly recognize. Thanks to the people who helped put together this show. Senior producer Matt Purdy, associate producers Mark Sollinger and Mark Filipino, and engineer Doug Sugars. From PRI and WGBH Radio, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub. Support for Innovation Hub comes from the Museum of Science in Boston, working to push the boundaries of what's possible. Public Radio International.